Hello and welcome to the TGP Wrestling Podcast. And today we have uh, another um, gentleman and another personality from the wrestling world. Uh, I'm speaking to Michael today, or better known as the Canadian Rebel Starbuck. How are you today, mate? You okay? Yeah, I'm doing good. I'm just getting ready this weekend. We have an event here in Helsinki called Slam Fest, the road to the Slam Championship. And uh, we are establishing the very first slam wrestling champion this summer and uh the the finals of that will be uh then on the 6th of august in helsinki also so this coming weekend uh, is basically the um where we find out who gets to vie for the title amazing very exciting stuff now obviously we all we did want to have a, t- a chat with you today about slam wrestling because obviously it's incredibly in- interesting um promotion idea and sort of thing but we'll start with that actually so Obviously, in your wrestling career, you've been obviously been wrestling since 1994. So it's been been a long old career. And it's obviously, you've worked with some brilliant people and some great promotions and stuff. But mm-hmm. why did you decide to sort of branch out and start kind of your own promotion with um, Slam Wrestling? Well, the thing is that you know I looked at my life at uh, you know I'm I'm not, I'm 49 right now, but this was back in. 2018 and i thought to myself that i'd been trying to make wrestling in finland um i'd been trying to make it feasible and and like economically viable uh to get it on television and then to uh, become like a touring act Hmm. um for a long time i ran another company here which i started back in in uh, 2006 uh which 2006 which was uh fight club finland and and i ran that that for nine years um but that was a non-profit entity and the thing i could never get that to turn a buck uh and i think it's because it was constructed as a a sports club and you know in the sense where you know nowadays we have this idea of all-inclusive this that the other but in with a sports club idea what happens is this that like when you have people sign up to become members of a sports club mm-hmm. um they pay an annual fee and basically you are liable by finnish law i'm probably in the it's the same in other countries too but but you're 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 liable by law to to offer them uh things to do that are based upon the description of whatever your club is uh, you know whatever your offering is yeah so if you're, if you're presenting wrestling uh you are obligated by law then to figure out a place for them uh in the wrestling you know end of things so even if they don't have the skill the talent uh the discipline or whatever else you know the maybe the bodily you know the physical uh wherewithal to do what we do maybe the appearance is lacking whatever else but you have to you have to figure something out for them yeah and uh it's it becomes kind of like that you have to play by the by the the weakest link you know it's the the weakest link on the chain uh which becomes it's an achilles heel all of a sudden so like that's where you take something like that and you bring it to a uh to let's say a television production company and you say okay we've got a wrestling organization we'd like to see if maybe you guys would be interested in doing a a program or something and they look at your offering they say that well okay well it's kind of a mishmash because it you know it's not it doesn't look professional from head to toe put it that way and uh so that's what i ran into for years and years and years with that nonprofit uh thing where it just i couldn't make it fly i mean i i i got a lot of sponsors involved through my own efforts 
Uh, I think that, uh, you know, that I, all the, all the money that I was able to bring in from the outside into that company, I, I didn't take a penny of it for myself. I put it all into the company and, uh, or into the promotion. It was not a company. It's a nonprofit. So it's not a company, yeah. um, but into, into the, into the organization. And, and, and basically I was never able to make that thing fly regardless of all my efforts. So, and I think it's because there's also, it's, it's too much of a democracy. It's, you know, like, I, I think that in wrestling, um, this may vary, this may, may sound very old school, but I believe that, uh, the only real way to, to have like strong leadership and to be able to, uh, execute a mission, because really what we're doing is that you, you have to have a mission and mission statement. You have, a, have to have an end goal and, and a clear vision of where you're going. Yeah. So the thing is that for that, you need a strong leader and a strong leader needs autonomy, mm. which means that it's not a democracy. You can't have everybody just pitching in their ideas. Everybody's like opinion weighs the same amount. It's, it's not possible. And that's where, let's say, I think a lot of people, you know, come down hard on Vince McMahon uh, with WWE is, is that, you know, he's, you know, a ruthless business businessman. But yeah. at the end of the day, he has to be. He has to be. It's his business. It's, it's his money. He's the guy sitting at the top of the mountain. He's the one that answers to all of those investors. So he has to be ruthless. And and uh, well, you know, there's a way to be. You know, uh, uh, let's say a, a noble king, a noble ruler, where you know you you deal with your your underlings or your subjects with with uh, you know compassion and with with fairness. Uh, but there also comes a time where let's say you've got to get rid of the dead weight. If somebody's not pulling their own weight, you got to get rid of the dead weight. Hmm. Um, but also in the, with all of this said now, so the reason uh, so you, where did slam wrestling come from is is the need for me looking at my life in my mid 40s hmm. uh, and saying that what am, what am I going to do? moving forward what is it that like you know do i have to go to vocational college for another degree do i have to like look into maybe changing lanes and uh doing something different with my life um because i'm not going to do you know active wrestling forever it's obviously every every one of us has a bump card yeah and the, the older that you get fills up so i'm looking at my life and i'm saying well what is it that i what are my what are my gifts what are my talents uh, what's my know-how, what's my knowledge, what's my inherent skill set. And to be honest, nobody in the Nordics of Europe, nobody in Northern Europe, very few in all of Europe in general, uh, have my track record as far as my, the level of experience that I have in this industry. So that's where I took a hard look at where I was in life. And I said that I'm going to find a way, where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, I'm going to find a way to make professional wrestling uh, financially viable and a, an actual business. Yeah. And, and this obviously, so in 2018, I started and it was a, I basically started as an entrepreneur with slam wrestling. And then only in, I believe it was two in 2019 uh, in December of 2019, I actually uh, morphed this uh this this company, my company, Slam Wrestling, into an LLC or LTD entity. So mm. th that's where I got shareholders involved, and um, and then all of a sudden COVID came. So like 2019, at the end of 2019, uh, you know, so two months later, COVID, mm. which screwed everything up. Um, and now for the past couple of years, you know, you, we've had to swim through the 
convoluted waters of COVID and all the different regulations and restrictions and all that. Mm. So it's, it's, it's hampered our business and, and it's obviously with everybody, it's done the same thing, but, uh, outside of that, still, we managed to turn a profit for the first time, uh, last year, even though it was a pandemic year. And that's where it's like, we must be doing something right because we're able to like, because usually all companies on average lose money in the first three years. But so, so we, we ended up, so making some money last year and now the trajectory is upward at the, at the current time, we will be opening up our own streaming network uh, starting next month. Uh, Right now we're scheduled to open next month and it probably will be uh, the URL would be, would be watch dot slamres.com so watch.slamwres.com very much similar to let's say uh you know wwe network or whatever of course not as much content we're not yeah. you know we don't have all the, that kind of content but we do have partners that we're working with uh on you know top european promotions uh that have very good production values uh which we will also feature because we use some of their talents on our shows also and uh so there's a certain kind of partnership that we have um and and some stuff from japan also that uh when when i was working more extensively in japan i've, I've been given the rights to use that that uh material and to use that uh, that footage on our coming streaming streaming network so with that in mind uh so slam wrestling slowly but surely i'm finding a way uh, as i said where there's a will there's a way to turn professional wrestling in in a small demographic area of the world which finland keep in mind is under six million people yeah um you know right next door estonia 1.5 million people it's it's you know so this is not even you know you can put uh germ uh, germany you take germany and you put finland norway sweden and estonia for example just as a four block you know country conglomerate and and it's still not the size of germany no population wise but still you know it's this is since this is where i live this is where i'm situated this is where i'm stationed out of i'm finding a way and different ways to uh turn this into a business because at like i said it's it's my passion uh it's my wife and my mistress um all in one professional wrestling it's it's the one thing that i know it's like i can shut my eyes and as i know my own hands so i know the wrestling business that's amazing. Look, I think that, you know, in life, I mean, if we can all do what we want to do and we can all fall in love with an industry such as obviously myself and you and obviously all of our listeners are in, in love with the wrestling industry. It's, it's amazing to hear the insight of somebody who, who is really passionate and, you know, got their own promotion going. And it sounds like you've got some really huge plans in the future. And I'm sure that some of our listeners will certainly, you know, get on the streaming service and definitely get, you know, watching some content because it, it does sound really exciting. So, Obviously, you did mention um, Japan mm-hmm. there. Now, um, from uh, a lot of listeners today, obviously, a big WWE fans knew that you worked with Tajiri a lot in uh, in Japan. And mm-hmm. um, from my understanding, he's, he's still a, f- a friend of yours now. I mean, how was it sort of working in Smash Pro with him? And did you enjoy the Japanese style? Because I know it's, it's a tough style to work, isn't it? Well, the thing is that, you know, it's to first question. Uh, so to answer that, I mean, it's... Uh, I love Japan. It's it's yeah. the absolutely the greatest country where I've ever wrestled. It be, when you become a star in Japan, now I was very fortunate to be, to be not only uh, utilized but to be booked in a way that when I my first night in Japan, my first day, there was a double double header event, one in the afternoon, one in the evening. 
and I wrestled Hajime O'Hara on the first uh, show in the afternoon, and I I just trumped him, um, and I got over like gangbusters, and uh, then I faced Tajiri uh, in the evening, and I defeated him, yeah. um, and that put me over the moon because I, I pile drove him, and I pinned him with one finger on his chest, and and that made all the medias. It literally just skyrocketed me into the mainstream in all of the country of Japan. And I'm not kidding. I'm not blowing smoke up my own ass here. Uh, it's, it, it really was a case of samurai TV and all the different Tokyo sports newspapers, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Uh, weekly, weekly pro wrestling magazine. And they were, they all got on it like right away. And there, it was weird because in Japan, uh, just to give you some indication of, of how popular I became in a very short period of time. Um, my debut was the 24th of July, 2010. Uh, by the beginning of the year of 2011, January, Weekly Pro Wrestling Magazine ran their year-end poll. So it's like a reader's poll where they, yeah. they basically had like MVP of the year. They had most popular guys in. They had match of the year. And they basically did a breakdown of all the different companies. So let's say like match of the year in NOAA, match of the, match of the year in, in all Japan, match of the year in New Japan, etc. But then there was uh, a common category for guy most popular guys in. So the most popular foreign wrestler and but that was for the entire country of japan amongst all promotions mm. not and th that wasn't like so that it was a very broad spectrum i was in the top five wow. i've been there for, i've been there for five months and i was already in the top five and that with guys like kenny omega so like it just gives you an idea of of just how vastly popular i became mm. um and which is why i love japan and like i said when you get over in japan when you become a star there people treat you like royalty you become a king yeah i'd walk i'd walk down the street i have people literally literally bringing me samurai swords on the street wow as gifts yeah that's crazy. so it, it's nuts. It's nuts. And and it's like, I, I so fondly remember all that because the thing is that, I mean, they, they realized that I was a musician. Uh, so the company smash would have me do these after parties. Yeah. And they'd always ask me to, to play the guitar and to sing at the after parties. It was one of the, the, the main numbers because they would sell tickets to the after parties that were separate from the wrestling event tickets. And people had to, you know, shell out some more cash um, just to, just to come out meet the wrestlers and, you know, have a good time and, you know, at the after party. So, I would play between let's say one and three songs. And there was one time where they, they just had a, um, an exclusive after party for myself and, and my crew, uh, which was separate from the, from the Japanese crew at a, at a, at a different restaurant than, than the other guys went to. And uh, I think I played something in the range of five or six songs there, but, but otherwise it's, it's like, it was amazing because, you know, like these people, they, they just took to me like gangbusters. And I asked so many of the media people and I asked production people and I asked like just fans in general, I asked them all the same question because I couldn't get, like, I didn't understand why was I getting over so much? Because the thing is that I realize that I, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not a guy who believes my own hype. Mm. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a mark for myself. Um, and, but what I am is, is that I realized that we, this is a fantasy where we're living a fantasy for a moment of our lives. And once your time is over, it's over. Yeah. And you don't know when that time is, but you have to realize it's only a mirage. It's a dream because all those fans that fawn after you, all the girls that follow you, follow you to your hotel room. Yeah. Um, 
all, all of these people, none of them care about who you really are. Like they, it's your trials, your tribulations, your financial woes, your marital woes, your, your family troubles, your health problems, whatever. N nobody cares. Nobody cares. It's just that it's just the, the cover shot of who you are as a star that, that they're entranced by. Um, and that's not a knock on anybody, but this is just the truth. This is the mm. way that life is. And that's why I never believed the hype. So, um, but still, I mean, that, that since I was able to be a king, not, not just for a day, but, you know, a king for a season in Japan over a four year period, um, I, I would say that, you know, I'm, I'm extremely grateful for that, for Tajiri giving me the opportunity, mm. um, for booking me in such a way that he believed in me. I was propositioned by New Japan Pro Wrestling in 2012. Wow. I, I, I had gone out to, uh, it was, I was at a, um, a meeting, a lunch, a lunch meeting in, in, in Tokyo. Uh, and one of the guys from the New Japan office sat down with me and they said, now's your time to make the jump. Mm. It's, and, and I said, well, the thing is that Mr. Tajiri opened the door for me to come to this country. And he needs me now more than ever because right at that time, Smash had lost their, their, uh, their promoter and their money man. And they had transitioned to a different name called WNC, Wrestling New Classic. And they had a new money guy. Uh, but they weren't making as much. The guy wasn't put, putting in, in as much money as the guy from Smash was. Mm. And Tajiri, I was his top guy, Jin. I was his top foreign wrestler. He had built Smash around me. I was his first champion in Smash ever. Uh, so I said to the New Japan office, I said, I'm sorry, mm. but uh, Tajiri needs me now more than ever. And I can't do this to him. I can't let him down. And I walked away I, you know, from, from New Japan at the time, second biggest company in the world. And, and uh, the door was open for a moment. Then I remember I was, I was talking to one of my one of my good journalist friends um, in Japan. And, and I mentioned this story to him that I met with the new Japan office. And he said, to be honest with you, you would have lost nothing or you've lost nothing because they would not have known how to use you. Yeah. He said yeah. that, that Tajiri understood what you brought to the table. He understood what, you know, your talent level, what your, what your, your, your entire ball of wax was. And he booked you, as a special attraction based on that. Cause it's like, I was the king of European or of Northern European wrestling mm. uh, that, you know, it was, you know, like a mix of, I brought back something that, you know, the, the, the Harley race school of wrestling kind of thing, uh, you know, ha had presented in Japan mm. and, and, and that's what was unique because everybody else was doing the high spot style back in 2010 already. And I was doing like the Calgary Bret Hart style. So, that's where I was a breath of fresh air, but I was also a, a throwback, a callback to a time that people loved in Japan for pro wrestling. And that was the classic era. And, and that's why I got over so much. And that the, the Japanese press, the people that I asked the same question, the fans, uh, the, the production people, why am I so popular? Once I got voted in 2011 as one of the top five most popular guys in, they said, all said the same thing. I said charisma. Yeah. And I and then I thought to myself that indeed, if you if you consider Abdullah the Butcher, Bruiser Brody, uh, Dusty Rhodes, Tiger Jeet Singh, um, all the guys, Terry Funk, all the most popular gaijins that have ever come through Japan, Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair. What's the one common denominator? 
and it's charisma yeah with every single one of them so that's where i understood okay okay that's it's a, and and that's kind of like why for me um japan has always been the the golden grail it's yeah. always been like the brass ring for me and when i achieved that i always you know i i thought that if i could ever just make it there and just wrestle once and just say that i've been in japan and you know and and i didn't ever believe that i would just become a, a mainstream star like nationally there and i did and and that's where um yeah so i'm very grateful to tajiri for mm-hmm. for offering me that opportunity uh your your second question was just recall that I, I forget now, but uh, something about uh, so my time in Japan, and then what was your other half of the question? Oh, if I'm honest with you, I don't. <laughs> I'm just in awe listening to all this. It's just so interesting. Like, um, I think to be honest, it's for, for us listening to this, and you know, we're all big uh, Japanese wrestling fans. But I think the the, mm. the most the majority the of style, was, yeah, yeah, the you're asking about the style, yeah. So, like for me. There's something that I said, I was on Chris Jericho's podcast back in 2019, mm. <laughs> you know, that uh, as, as I was doing the, the mega launch event for Slam Wrestling here, yeah. and, uh, I went on Talk as Jericho and, and Chris is an old friend of mine. Um, so I said on that podcast, I said, the worst thing that you can ever say to me is that, oh, you're just one other, another one of these fake wrestlers. Because to me, like Jericho said back in the day, I remember he's very poignant, poignant, oh geez, I'm mumbling, <laughs> poignantly stated uh, that uh, everyone's a mark for something, you know, and, and Jericho, is a, he's a big kiss mark. He loves the band Kiss, you know, but everybody's a mark for something. And uh, for me, I've always been a stickler for legitimacy in pro wrestling. I always want, I want to be the guy who believes to this day, I still want to be the guy who believes, no matter how, how odd that may sound to people listening. But I come from a day and age where, where if you looked at the, the stampede wrestling style, because I was brought up in Calgary, um, you know, that was a very hard edge style. That was a very physical style. I mean, they laid that stuff in. Yeah. Um, and that's where, like, even guys like Bret Hart, I mean, you can't see through his work. I mean, he's he's tight. He's very tight. And um, that that comes down to the old Dynamite Kid philosophy in Calgary, which is that do one move at a time and do it as well as you can. And for me, the Japanese style was because of the physicality. It fit my motto, it fit my credo of the worst thing that you could say to me is that, oh, you're, not, you're just another fake fake wrestler. And no, I'm not. I mean, I carry the Johnny Valentine credo that says you can watch every other match on the card tonight, but you watch my match. And if you see any bullshit, I'm going to give your money back. Yeah. And that, and that's the thing where for me, when I, when I hit somebody, when I, when I kick somebody, when I, when I wrestle somebody, when I grab a hold, when I put you in a submission, you don't know where that line is drawn. There's there's been many different opponents over the years that have said to me that they've kind of lost track of where like what was really going on, and I you know I think I hold that as as a badge of honor because it's it's kind of like it becomes so real that you know it's it's what 
Tom Pritchard said on the Chris Benoit Hard Knocks DVD that WWE put up back 2004 mm. with, with a Brian Pillman tribute show uh, match between uh, Steve Regal, William Regal, and, uh, and Chris Benoit. Uh, he said that I show this match to all my students because this is a classic case of two guys who are in there actually wrestling. They're not playing wrestler. They're not acting wrestler. They're not just going through moves. They're actually in there fighting. They are wrestling. And that's what wrestling's always been to me, pro wrestling. It's always been that I treat it like a real fight. When I teach my students, I've taught guys down, guys and girls, uh, since 2003 in eight different countries. Wow. Okay, on two different continents, eight different countries. Um, a lot of my students have gone on to wrestle uh, throughout Europe, if not throughout the world. Some of them have gone to America, some have gone to Japan. So the thing is that I teach the same thing, that you treat it like it's real, because if it's real to you, it'll be real to them. Yeah. If you believe it, they'll believe it. If you don't believe it, they won't believe it either. So it, you have to be convicted first. First and foremost, the conviction, it lies on you. And, and for me, that's where Japan, the style in Japan, was perfect for me because even though I've, I got some concussions, legitimate concussions, I've got eight different concussions in my career, but I got, I got a few of them in Japan. I lost some teeth in Japan. Um, I, I mean, I, I got, I, I have some war wounds. I mean, some legitimate injuries uh, from, from my time in Japan. But the thing is that it's like Dr. Death, Steve Williams said back in the day too, when back in Japan, somebody got hurt. One of the younger boys got hurt. He said, Hey, it's not ballet. And it's not, yeah. if you can't, if you can't take it, you don't belong. And the thing is that it's not up to the business. It's not up to the other guys and the girls in the business to take it down, tone it down just for you. If you can't take it, if you can't take it, you don't belong. Get out. It's not for you. That's why it's like, there used to be a weeding out process mm. back in the, in the eighties and the seventies guys who wanted to get in the wrestling business. It, I mean, this, it was as tight as a drum. It was, it was like the mafia. And, it was because they would take and they would beat the living shit out of you. They would take and ab absolutely they'd, they'd, they'd butcher you. Uh, like Hiro Matsuda, Hulk Hogan's trainer, broke his leg. It was the first day in, the, you know, in training, broke his leg just to see if he'd come back. And, and it's like when I got trained by Carl Moffat, uh, formerly Jason the Terrible, or you know, he still does wrestle uh, past the age of 60 now, Every once in a while, it's Jason the Terrible. But back in Stampede and New Japan, All Japan, Puerto Rico for Carlos Colon, uh, under the hockey mask, Jason the Terrible, Stu Hart Stampede Wrestling. Um, you know, he when he was one of my trainers along with Lance Storm, but when Carl trained me, he hit, he absolutely hit everything. The headbutts, bone on bone. He'd hit, you'd hear your skull actually crack. Yeah. Uh, all the blows, the kicks, everything. He hit you. And I remember he had me once in the corner. And this was uh, 1993. I was 21 years old. And he, he had me in the corner and he was driving the shoulders into my gut. You know, the shoulder blocks in the corner. When you got the guy in the corner, you're ramming your shoulder into his guts. And, I, and it hurt so much. He was a big man. I mean, he's like 6'6 and uh, probably somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of, let's say, 270 pounds. Yeah, you know, he's, he's a legitimately big man, like Hell's Angel kind of biker. And uh, I put my hand in the way just to blunt the blow. 
and he felt my hand in the way and he stood up and he yelled in my face said that if you ever fucking do that again i'll rip your fucking head off and at that point i lost the fear i i i just said okay hit me with anything i don't care i can i'll do this and i and that's like it was a blessing in disguise because i think you know there's so many people i think today that would never be able to take that but (laughs) but 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 back then um it's it's like it toughened me up to the point where it's like you, you got to treat it like it's real you cannot be running away when when the heat is on when you are hurting you can't be cowering and taking a break you've got to to stay with it and i stayed with it and in japan when when i'd wrestle guys like masakatsu funaki right mm. when i'd wrestle guys like genichiro tenru or even tajiri himself I mean, they'd make you earn that payday. Yeah. They, they would legit, they, they would kick you and hit you and chop you so freaking hard that you felt your internal organs shift. <laughs> and that's not a joke. I'm not, this is not kayfabe. This is mm. the truth. You'd felt, you, you would feel your internal organs. I mean, you might, when, when Tenru punched me in the face, yeah, I'd feel my jaw get rocked. And I got to make sure you close that, your, your teeth. You got to grit your teeth when he hits you. Don't keep that jaw open. Uh, you know, when, when Masakatsu Funaki would kick you, he'd kick you with such force that you felt like a football being punted around a field. And, and uh, Tajiri, too, same thing. You know, whether, whether it's his kicks or his, or his chops or whatever have you, I mean, it's like he's legitimately laying into you. And there is... There's a certain kind of, you know, that death before dishonor, that Kota Bushido, uh, where you can't lose face, that fighting spirit. You have to have that fighting spirit. You have to show heart. Mm. And and that's part of what also I think has been lost in translation in modern society where the evisceration of gender roles, where men are no longer men, <laughs> women are no longer women, you know, maybe just an appearance, but otherwise, I mean, just the, the, the emotional or, or let's say the psychological facilities and capacities of these people nowadays, it's very different from let's say 20, 30, 40 years ago. Mm. Um, but, but part of manliness and part of being, you know, a true man is, is, is partly discipline and part of it is honor. Part of it is courage. Mm. Part of it is, you know, valiant, uh, you know, fighting spirit. And that's what, you know, a lot of that, like I said, what Carl Moffat instilled in me back in, in 93 is what carried over into Japan uh, come the, the 2010 and uh, the decade of the 2010s uh, when I worked there more extensively. And that's where I was okay with all that. You know, it's like getting hit and all that. It's, it's, I was very okay with that. And I would wear those, you know, the scars afterwards as a badge of honor. And to this day, it's like, I don't know what that fake wrestling is. When people talk, the wrestling's fake. I have no idea what you're talking about. At least not what I do. Maybe what somebody else does, but not what I do. That's not what I do. And, uh, and that's what, like, for me, like I said, my credo is, is that uh, the worst thing you can say is that, oh, you're just another one of those fake wrestlers. No, I'm not. I'm different. Yeah, and the thing is, I mean, a lot of people, um, of course, will grow up on um, the most popular product, which is, you know, obviously going to be, you know, WWE. And to them, 
Um, mm. If you go to a WWE show, right, as I have before, um, mm. you see, you'll see such a completely different product. So if you go to like your local indie show, for example, like the guys and girls, you know, that work in WWE, they, of course, they're great and stuff, but the product is mm. so far away from what professional wrestling is on either a smaller scale or just in a different culture in a different country like if you watch japanese wrestling to western wrestling it's just it's so different and i think that that's what i think it's one of the great things about the industry is that there isn't one maybe a right way to do it as such but everybody's got their different sort of opinions on what they enjoy as a product and that kind of thing mm. and I, I think that's great i think it's probably why we love w wrestling in general really so now obviously we sort of talked about WWE a little bit there now I know that um as regards to WWE side of things you actually did put a broadcaster for WWE for Finnish TV um, it was for for Eurosport for the Eurosport TV channel yeah um how did you find that experience because that must have been so interesting to sort of be there in that sort of environment well the thing is it's like I've been gifted by the good lord above with uh the 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 with the skill to talk, you know, the gift of gab. I've, I've, I've got a good voice. Uh, one of the ways that I make my money is that um, I do voiceovers for commercial uh, industry and business for B2B, B2C, and for export here in Finland. Um, it's so like, you know, like commentary or voiceover or what have you, just voice work comes very naturally to me. It's, it's very easy. It's just like breathing. It's, I don't even have to think and being able to talk about wrestling to call wrestling i don't even have to like hardly look at the liner notes as far as like what's on the schedule i just call what i see and it's it's just autonomous it's like it comes automatically um for me it was fun i really enjoyed it to be honest with you um of course there are times when there are matches angles and matches skits that you can't you can't really, how could you say, it's hard to, to retain credibility uh, with your commentary if you if you call it uh, right down the middle kind of thing, like, you know, as a company man. Yeah. Um, so that's where I would sometimes struggle with some of the things where it's like when some angles or some things are so absurd that like even a kid can see through it. But um, outside of that, uh, usually I would say like 9.5 times out of 10, um, it didn't produce any kind of like, how could you say, like effort from my end. It's just that I understand the intonation that needs to be used. I understand the, the excitement that needs to be implied uh, and transferred over to the viewer. I understand the the storytelling aspect of it. I understand the backstory to the, to the matches and to the angles and to the different feuds. So, I mean, all of that was really simple to be honest. Yeah. It's amazing. Look, um, I could sit here and talk to you all day. I mean, you're a good storyteller. <laughs> you, you are a great talker. I'll definitely agree to you on that one. Um, mm -hmm. But unfortunately we have run out of time today. Now, um, I'm sure if anyone's got any further questions for you, I can I can maybe uh, speak to you on sort of Instagram like we've been doing. But um, look, I really appreciate you coming on today, Mike. It's been a great. Yeah, I mean, if um, if if you, if, you, if you got a like, let's say if you got 15 minutes, I can still give you another 15. So I got like, I can still spare spare a bit of time here. Oh, amazing! That would be great. So what we'll do yeah. is we'll split this into a slight sort of 
part two then so stay mm. tuned listeners we will be back in one moment Hi, welcome back to part two here of my interview with the Rebel Starbuck. Um, now, we, we had a great part one there, obviously talking all things uh, Japan and obviously like WWE side of things with the broadcasting side. Now, a question that we asked our, our last interviewee on here, um, Harvey Dale, was that, what, it's, it's tough, by the way, it's a difficult question. <laughs> I know that it might, you know, but... Do you have a favorite storyline that you worked? Like, so I think we ask favorite match, right? No rest. Mm. I mean, it's really hard. Favorite match. That's so difficult. Mm-hmm. You've had thousands of matches, but do you have like a favorite storyline that you've worked where you thought this is right? This resonates with the crowd. This is, this is just money. Uh, I would have to go back to Japan. Yeah. I, I think, I think that like um, the one thing is that in Japan, I learned, this term that they use for very few people in the wrestling industry called wrestling genius and guys like Mara Fuji are tagged yes. with this um, guys like Keiji Muto guys like Tajiri. Uh, so there are, there are select wrestlers who have a mind for the business, a creative mind and a really, how could you say um, intuitive uh, mind for, for, how things should play out mm-hmm. um and i think that i sat under the learning tree with tajiri and i think that's part of the reason why our camaraderie became good i you know as there there's one of the guys that worked tightly with tajiri um for for quite a while uh that told me after like tajiri had gone to wrestle one and he was no longer in a power broker position. He said that if I were you, I would, I would uh, stay in contact with, with uh, Tajiri from time to time, because every time that he speaks of you, every time your name comes up, he always remembers you fondly. He always has good things to say about you. And he, you know, th- that's where, you know, if, if I were you, I'd just stay in contact with the guy. And I have, it's not just for that reason, but because of the thing that, that I learned so much uh, like a sponge, uh, when when I was able to work with him, and his creative mind for both building me into the into the gaijin, how could you say, superstar mm-hmm. for his companies that I was. The road to that part of that included the old school uh, philosophy of once you hit your finish, the match is over. You don't kick out of a finish. No. Now you can you can tease a finish. Like there are so many guys these days that you know you can you'll be hitting like even the old all Japan kind of style where, let's say you'd be hit the, hitting the finish like four or five times before you finally pin the guy with the finish. Uh, but that was not the case with Tajiri. What he would do is that you can tease it. You you won't hit it. The guy will slip out of it. They'll counter it. But once you hit that finish, it's over. Mm-hmm. And that's something that helped solidify my pile driver, jumping spike pile driver as a finish. Mm-hmm. And there was only one time in all of the matches that we had in Japan between Tajiri and myself, and no one else 
was allowed to do this. That there was one match at JCB Hall, which became Tokyo Dome City Hall later on, uh, in 2010, November 22nd, 2010, where at Smash 10, um, I pile drove him and he kicked out. And the people went ballistic because mm. nobody kicked out of the pile driver. Nobody. And they had been programmed to believe that, right? So uh, in that way that when Tajiri was finally able to not only kick out, but then uh, later on in that match to a few minutes later, hit me with the pile driver in my own move himself, the people were absolutely becoming unglued. Mm. And I was able to kick out of that, after which he hit me with a buzzsaw kick, right after he hit me with my own pile driver. And, and at that point, it was one, two, three. But um, the whole point being that the build for me in Japan, there's two things that Tajiri you know, told me that, that uh, one of them was that nobody kicks out of the finish. The second one was that he said that in my, in my promo style and when I speak, he said, be like Jesus. Hi. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, because I'm a man of faith. Yeah. You know, I, I, I believe in Jesus, Lord and Savior. So um, I it's really funny that there's something about my personality, which kind of like just drew that comparison out where he said gravitate towards that. Um, but it worked it, it, with the Japanese people. It really, really worked. And, and it caught on like wildfire. Um, so that was one. Like I would say, I don't know if you consider that to be a storyline, but that was part of the build of Starbuck. Mm-hmm those things, those elements were part of the building and that they worked. That's the whole thing. They, they drew money for his organization, for his, for both smash and WNC. So obviously something was done right with those elements and they did catch on and they did generate uh, public interest. So that meant money at the end of the day. Um, then there was in WNC, my team with, uh, Akira Nagami and with Shuri Kondo and Shuri nowadays wrestles for stardom and she's probably the number one female wrestler in Japan today mm. period uh, she's former crush kickboxing woman's champion so like she's she's the real deal she was in UFC for, for uh, four fights um, and then she came back to pro wrestling so the thing is that we were this faction called Synapse. And in WNC, once WNC started, Tajiri got a hold of me and he said, do you have any ideas for a team name? We're going to put you guys together. And I, I threw out some ideas of my own. He, he didn't feel it. Like the things that I threw out, he just didn't feel it. And then he said, no, Synapse. It's like, you know, the, the, the nerve synapses in your muscles, in your body. It's like synapse. We'll use that. And I thought to myself, well, whatever the boss wants, uh, it's not, not my call. But, you know, so I'll, so I'll be happy to do that. But then he asked me another question. He said, we need to come up with a color scheme for your team. That, right. uh, I was, he said, I was thinking like black and gold. And I said, uh, I would recommend black and red and he went with black and red so that's where it's like my my contribution was taken into account and i think that the 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 funny thing is that in 2012 
we got so hot with Synapse as a team, me, Suri, and, and, um, and Akira, that we were heralded as the, like the next or the second coming of the next or new NWO. Wow. Yeah, that, I mean, people were absolutely gangbusters. We toured Japan. We went all around Japan. Uh, and we'd go to like um, Fukushima, or no, was it Fukushima? It was, what was it? Um, trying to think. The Jushin Thunder Liger used to have a gym there. Um, Yo, was it Yokohama? I, for, I forget, but anyway, it was one of these, one of these, uh, one of these cities in, like, was it southern Japan, whatever. But you know, we go all around the place, and uh, you know, we train at the same gyms together. You know, as a team, we would go and and uh, you know, you know, we'd we'd eat together. So we'd go out on the town, and have some ramen noodles or whatever, you know, together. Um, and we'd then go to the after parties together. And our team was built around the idea that uh, we wanted change, that whatever had been the, the status quo, that we wanted to shake the system. And once again, this, this idea, just on an idea, like for the Japanese populace and for the Japanese mentality, this idea parlayed well, like Tajiri could read his own people. He could read the Japanese people. He, he knew what was going to work. And this team that we had, we did set up this one vignette. I think it's still out on YouTube, uh, the formation of Synapse. Um, not sure where you're, if you can find it under what name, but it was, um, it should, I think it's, it's still up somewhere. But uh, it, I think it played out really well because we as a, as a six person, or as a, sorry, as a, as a three person team, uh, would go up against Tajiri and then any two uh, partners of his, you know, one female, one male. So it was like a mixed tag kind of situation. So it was usually it was Kana, who is now Asuka in WWE. Yeah. It was her and Tajiri. And then let's say maybe Mikey Whipwreck from w- ECW, or that mm. it was like uh, maybe uh, Hajime Wahara or, or anybody else, like just any, any random, you know, third partner uh, against our team. And it's like, Nine times out of ten, we're we're kicking their ass. Nine times out of ten, we're taking the the win home. And uh, then we had these barbed wire board matches. Finally, which once again, you know, the psychology of which is that you're trying not to hit the barbed wire. Yeah. You're not actually, you're not, you're not getting, you know, you're not rolling around in thumbtacks and just like willingly slicing slicing your body open with barbed wire it's no no you're you're trying to stay do everything in your power to stay away from the board yeah um and and you know those matches i we we beat tajiri and his team several times in those matches there's one match at the end of the tour where our team went down and that's where actually i got thrown into the board uh, is set up in the corner and my hair got tangled up in the barbed wire legitimately to the point where I could not untangle myself out of the board. Cause it's like, I was like Absalom in the Bible, you know, getting hung up on a tree branch by his hair and, and basically breaking his neck. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's where they pinned me. So, um, yeah, that's like, these, these are the two, two of my favorite builds, I would say in my career where Tajiri, he could see, what would work. And then I just fulfilled the vision to the best of my ability 
that the booker laid out and uh it worked like magic it was, it was fantastic I think I think most wrestlers, from my understanding anyway, um, you know when you're on to something good. You know when you know when it feels right. You know when you you know working well. You're doing good work and that sort of thing. And it, it's it's refreshing to speak so passionately about obviously that time in your life, especially in Japan, because it's it's just such a popular region for all wrestling fans. Um, now we come to the time in the podcast where we ask our guest uh, is I know we've always sort of spoke about obviously hope so we we, we kind of um you spoke about that uh, sorry uh, slam wrestling finland mm-hmm. um and if if there's anything else at this point in time that you sort of wanted to you know sort of promote to our listeners i'm sure they'll be actively listening and um would be really excited to hear what you've got to say so if there's anything else you wanted to talk about with regards to you know what you got going on well uh for those of you who don't know um, I, I'm also a vocalist in, in a couple of different bands. Actually, I have four different bands that I, that I, I'm a singer in also a songwriter, but, uh, two of them are like regular bands that we tour with. Uh, two of them are projects that are pretty much every once in a while. Um, so the two projects are called angel of Sodom. And, uh, the, uh, that's like thrash metal from the Bay area from San Francisco style eighties mixed with like, let's say creator from germany or something um and then we have uh, this doom metal band called supernaut that's like mm-hmm. from black sabbath's volume four back in the day this is the song on the album called supernaut spelled the same way and uh it's uh it's very very dire and uh i could just say almost like soul crushing <laughs> doom in the, in the in the vein of let's say candle mass um then I have my two regular bands, which are Stoner Kings mm-hmm. and uh, Crossfire. Stoner Kings is heavy rock, very, very like Black Sabbath oriented to a large degree, but with maybe some some Entombed or Motorhead thrown in there. Um, and then we have, uh, like I, I mentioned, the Crossfire, which is Southern rock. So it's like we are undoubtedly Finland's number one Southern rock band on the world map. Uh, we played with bands like ZZ Top, Johnny Winter, um, Steppenwolf, Blackfoot, um, what have you. So, I mean, it's like, you know, we've we've done the rounds with major bands, Molly Hatchet and whatnot. Um, and now we just released a new album with uh, Crossfire that just came out uh, this past spring called, was, I think it was on the 7th of May that it came out. It's called Medicine Men. And Medicine Men is available on all the relevant streaming platforms, the iTunes, the uh, Spotify's, Deezer, whatever else. Hmm. Um, I recommend checking it out. It's, 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 really, it's, it's really good classic rock slash southern rock. So it, it'll hold up to anything out there, like whether it be Leonard Skinner or whether it be uh, Allman Brothers or whatever have you. It's, it, it holds up. It really does. So um so I'm, I'm the singer for those bands and uh then we have um for for anybody out there who's interested as i mentioned we have that slam wrestling uh network starting up next month so if you just keep your eyes on slamrest.com that's s-l-a-m-w-r-e-s.com uh you'll be able to to check that out and the thing is that i have to mention that you know we we are trying to do something 
uh, outside the box with slam wrestling, which is different from the, I, w- I would say the indie rific wrestling style of today. Yeah. Uh, the thing is that like the question for anybody out there as to why should they buy or purchase another wrestling network subscription? Um, and why should they care? You know, like there's so many companies out there. Why should you care? Of course. And my answer, my answer to you is this, that like we, we are different than we're not the same as we're different than. And when I say that a lot of what we do is a throwback to the way wrestling used to be mm. the style that wrestling used to be, because that's like how I was brought up and I brought up my guys and the people that work for me, I tell them the same thing, that don't do anything in these matches uh, that where you'd prostitute the integrity of the product. Mm-hmm. That make it snug, make it believable. Uh, you know, work a competitive style and, and keep it believable. And that's where if you're looking for a sports-based presentation or something which is like how wrestling you, you maybe remember from the, the 80s or the 90s, maybe even the early part of the 2000s, but still like the, the way that wrestling used to be back in the day. And you remember the feelings and the vibes that you had back then. You had some good characters. You had some good uh, good gimmicks. You had you know, strong personalities. You had uh, really good fundamental wrestling skills. The way that wrestling used to be. If, if that's what you are fond of, uh, and that you know you're you're fond about, and that that you kind of like you have a soft spot in your heart for that, then you got to check out Slam Wrestling, and that's where you got to go to SlamRest.com. That's right. So S L A M W R E S dot com, and the network is starting up uh, next month in in August, and um, it will be probably I, I believe the URL is Watch dot So there you go. Uh, in addition to that. Uh, what what can I tell you of the other stuff out there? If, if, if anybody's interested, I did write a autobiography that came out back in 2017 called Battleground Valhalla. And it came through, uh, came out through Crowbar Press in the United States. Crowbar Press, which has done many of the different uh, autobiographies for guys like uh, Stan Hansen, um, J.J. Dillon. Uh, there's so many. They're, they've done all the the classic wrestlers. And I think I was the only guy from the new school of wrestling, so to speak, the new school now uh, that they, the, whose book they put out. And I wrote the book myself. There was no ghost writer. I wrote it over a five-year period on the road. I started on the road in Germany with my band on tour in 2010, writing the book in the tour van. And I ended uh, that book when I finished up writing it, it was in the tour van again in Germany in 2015 so the thing is that uh, it covers more so the first almost 25 years of my career. Um, if you'd like to check it out, it's really good. Uh, it's it's even if I say so myself, Chris Jericho wrote the the uh, uh, the plug for the book. It's on the back cover. Um, and there's a lot of guys that wrote testimonials uh, in the book itself, uh, you know, having known me in the business, whether it's Steve Carino or whether it's uh, Akira Nogami from Japan or Tajiri or, or guys like Michael Kovac and Bernard Van Damme from, from, um, from Europe here. But there's a lot of people that wrote testimonials in the book itself. Also, it's, it's a really good read. Uh, I, lo- I use a lot of self irony. Um, I'm a really good storyteller, very well spoken, very well written. So I think you'd enjoy it. You can find it through crowbarpress.com. 
or you can get a hold of me directly and I'll get a signed copy to you. And uh, yeah, you can, we can set you up and you just got to reach out to me at um, through Facebook or then through my Instagram. And uh, if you want to check me out on Facebook or Instagram, it's rebel Starbuck. So Instagram.com slash R E B E L S T A R B U C K. And also on Facebook, it would be uh, facebook.com slash the rebel Starbuck altogether. There you go. Amazing. Well, you are a fantastic self promoter, and that is that is brilliant. And it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you for giving the TGP Wrestling Podcast your time today. Okay, thank you so much, and I really appreciate it. No reason. Right, until next time, guys, stay tuned for more podcasts coming in the future.